The Nigerian Security Forces rescued nearly 200 abducted victims in northwest Nigeria, raising further concerns of insecurity, which has plagued Nigeria for the past few years, and the failure by the Nigerian government to address the socio-economic issues resulting in insecurity in the country. Also, the recent revelations by a whistleblower and last week's five-hour-long blackout brings Facebook back under public scrutiny, highlighting once again not only its controversial hunger for profit, but also its dramatic power and impact in a widely unregulated market. A report released by Banktrack and 25 other civil society organizations shows that the largest European banks are funding illegal settlements in the occupied territories in Palestine through loans and underwriting services. Hello everyone, welcome to this episode of the Human Rights Pulse News Briefing, where every other week we address some of the biggest human rights news and events. I'm Laura. And I'm Nigel. On the 8th of October, the Nigerian Security Forces rescued nearly 200 abducted victims in Sanfara State, a state which is in the northwest of Nigeria. The victims had spent weeks in captivity and two individuals had died during that period. According to state police, the victims were released unconditionally after an extensive search and rescue operation that lasted for hours. However, 38 kidnapped victims are still unaccounted for. The victims, who consist of men, women and children, were abducted by heavily armed gangs known locally as bandits that have plagued northwest and central Nigeria for years. Yeah, Nigeria has a known history of struggling with violence and armed groups. The country has, for years, been an operational basis of some sort for groups like Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, among others, and of course, Nigeria-based Boko Haram. In 2014, the specific organization was responsible for the kidnapping of 276 young girls from a town in the northeast of the country. The situation provoked an international response, especially in social media, and it is actually memorable the picture of Michelle Obama holding a sign with the hashtag Bring Back Our Girls, which many might recall, um, fueling a massive campaign of solidarity online. 82 of these girls had been released in 2017 following mediation, more were freed or found in the years that followed, some even in, in the very near past. Many of these girls have gone on to become wives for the militants of the group, others have been sold or held hostage for ransom, and later uh, the kidnapping technique has been taken over by local criminals, bandits and farmers, seeing a considerable rise in violence, which we are, well, discussing right now, actually. Yes, the security forces had blocked internet in northwestern states such as Amfara, Kansina, Sokoto and Kaduna states, where there is high insecurity. Although there have been concerns over restriction to internet access in these regions, where people were unable to communicate with their families, the security forces stated that the restrictions outweighed the risks. The assertion by the police that the victims were released without any ransom being paid might be questioned, considering that most victims of kidnappings in Nigeria have been released only after a ransom was paid, and often the government has failed to assist victims in this regard, leaving them to secure ransom money on their own. Yes, actually, coping with situations like this has not really been the forte of, of the Nigerian government. And the situation in the country has been a source of fear and concern for a long time, not just for its neighbours, but on an international level. The roots of such high 
Levels of violence and instability can be linked to a failing political and bureaucratic system that has doomed Nigeria's fate since the country gained its independence in 1960. Widespread corruption, lack of infrastructure and unemployment also contribute to the condition of the country today, uh, which is further divided on a cultural level, with a sharp division between Christians and Muslims. The government's struggle with Boko Haram has been troubling the country since 2009, and according to UN estimates, it has taken the lives of almost 350,000 people and displaced millions more. Clashes between herders and farmers have also intensified in the past years due to disagreement on land and resource management, but also hardened conditions caused by climate change. Buhari's administration has been accused of failing to deal with insecurity in the country, and some have made arguments that the Nigerian government is aiding and abating terrorist activities in the country. For instance, evidence from independent Nigerian media shows that the current administration treats so-called reformed terrorists better than it treats the Nigerian military, which is at the forefront of fighting terrorism in the country. There have been viral social media videos that have been made by Nigerian soldiers stating that they lacked adequate resources to fight Boko Haram, lacking basic things such as battle helmets, yet so-called reformed terrorists were receiving monthly allowance from the government. And we reported in previous episodes on this podcast how President Buhari has refused to take firm action against Fulani headsmen who have been killing people with machetes as they seek for grazing land for their cattle. Ultimately, all this internal divide and the constant fear for their safety has weakened the spirit of the Nigerian people who have in, in many cases been promised an end to the violence that has never really come. And while Boko Haram has been deemed as technically defeated by President Buhari, the population cannot yet feel the relief of hearing such a statement. Since the sweeping conquest of Afghanistan um, carried out by the Taliban this summer, many uh, now feel a revamp in violence and intensity of confrontations when it comes to jihad, um, with groups and fighters possibly galvanized by the victory over the Western oppressor in, in Afghanistan, or um, falling victims themselves of new expectations which are posed over, over their common cause. And now moving on to the scandal that has robbed Facebook in recent times. Internal evidence shared by former Facebook product manager Francis Haugen shows that Facebook has known the negative impacts that its application and its sister app Instagram causes but chooses to ignore. She revealed that the company knew that its product can have significant harm, such as negatively impacting the mental health of teens as well as being used as a platform to spread fake news. She pointed to the relaxing of the standards of misinformation after the 2020 presidential election, which saw the January 6th protest on Capitol. Um, yeah, and in her testimony, Hogan pointed out how the company puts its interests ahead of the well-being of its users, while not only conscious of what and how damage is being made, but also refusing to adapt its policies to what they know would fix the problem. She added that, according to her experience and the documents that she collected and that later handed over to the Washington Post, the company purposely pushes material they know or expect will make people angry or depressed. And as she testified last week in front of the US Senate, she called for more transparency and for an investigation to be launched to address her allegations. Although the company has come under increasing scrutiny over the past years, 
the blackout on the 4th of October of Facebook and its family apps, including Instagram and WhatsApp, which took out water communication platforms used by billions for hours, showcased just how dependent the world has become on this company. In some countries like Myanmar and India, Facebook is synonymous with internet and is also used to sign in to many other apps and services, leading to unexpected domino effects such as people not being able to log on to shopping websites or sign into their smart TVs, thermostats and other internet-connected devices. Businesses which are dependent on Facebook and Instagram to reach out their customers lost thousands of dollars during the blackout. If anything, the blackout confirmed to lawmakers just how powerful Facebook as a company has become, making Ms. Organ's testimony even more important. Yes, and following on that, what she believes is possibly the greatest of her problems is that nobody is holding Mark Zuckerberg, co-founder and CEO of Facebook, accountable for his actions and his company's effect. This aspect actually leads us right into another hot topic pretty relevant to this story, which has been um, widely denounced in the past And that's the lack of regulation when it comes to tech, an industry that has been evolving so significantly and so fast in the past years. And there's there's indeed a sort of limbo in which tech companies appear to operate, as legislation has not been able to catch up with them. How big should they be? What responsibilities do they bear when it comes to their users and how their platforms impact reality? Um, the lives of people, the political balance of a nation. And this links back to what happened in, in the US uh, that you mentioned earlier at, at the very Senate that hosted Hogan's deposition last January, um, a topic that is still strongly debated. Or back to the numerous accusations that have been moved against Facebook for its indulgence, sometimes even uh, alleged facilitation, when it came to false information and fake news on COVID and COVID vaccines. Especially in relation to COVID-19, the US President Joe Biden warned that the spread of COVID-19 misinformation on social media, like Facebook, is killing people. The White House Press Secretary Jen Paskey said Facebook and other platforms were not doing enough to combat misinformation about vaccines. However, Facebook says it's taking aggressive action to protect public health and that they've removed more than 18 million pieces of COVID misinformation. Apart from this, Facebook has also been accused of restricting freedom of speech by Republicans who believe they were cracking down on voter fraud conspiracies, while on the other hand, Democrats argue that Facebook does not do enough to take down conspiracies such as anti-vaccine content. Yeah, in many of these cases, it might seem too little too late, actually. However, another important aspect that needs to be recognized is the service these platforms represent at this point in time and for so many people around the world, right? And what I mean is, social media has become a catalyst of movements like Me Too or Black Lives Matter, and it has helped people denounce misbehavior or abuses across the world, both on large scale and small scale, with videos and stories of people denouncing wrongdoings through social media, um, ensuring public attention and condemnation, in some instances obtaining it, right? Or sharing important stories or you know, testimonies from uh, wherever they live or whatever situation they found themselves into, which would be which would be impossible without these platforms. And at times, um, it did bring positive change. And this is possibly the most powerful side of these platforms. They can provoke so much resonance that they can be weapons, both for the good and for the bad stuff. 
And how do we draw the line here then? Um, especially now that the internet is being acknowledged as a basic human rights, how are we meant to behave when this very thing is turned against the people who should be benefiting from it and are hurt for profit or are not protected from who weaponizes social media always for a profit? But I guess there's one too many questions and we will uh, keep debating on them. Now, uh, stay with us for our next segment, which will focus on a recently published report addressing banks' operations financing Israeli settlements in Palestine. Yeah, joining me today is our very first guest on our podcast, Hannah from Brentech. As the name implies, they are an organization tracking private sector commercial banks and the activities that they finance in relation to the environment and human rights issues. Today we'll be discussing the Don't Buy Into Occupation Report, released by BankTrack and other 25 civil society organizations. Uh, Hannah, if you can introduce yourself. Yeah, hi, uh, my name's Hannah Greep, and as Nigel said, I work at BankTrack. Um, I'm a human rights campaigner at BankTrack, so I look at the various uh, human rights impacts that arise from projects that are financed by banks around the world. So Anna, can you tell us a little bit about the report and why the general public should care about the findings that are contained in this report? Absolutely. So together with the coalition of other organisations that are spread across both Europe um, and in Israel and Palestine, we wanted to investigate the financial relationships between business enterprises that are involved in illegal Israeli settlement enterprise in the occupied Palestinian territory and that with European financial institutions. The situation in Israel-Palestine, as I'm sure many of you are probably aware, is a dire situation and the settlement enterprise is basically where uh, Israeli government is is creating these in some instances cities but but also smaller settlements and migrating Israeli people to live in occupied Palestinian territory this also uh, comes in conjunction with many other things that they are doing to oppress the Palestinian people and what we wanted to highlight was the fact that although this is happening what seems like far away from Europe, there's many financial connections between Europe and the companies that are operating in these settlements. And basically, they're providing the money to allow for these settlements to continue. If they didn't have the money, then they wouldn't be able to, to work. The top banks that are actually providing finance to the companies that are operating in the settlements are the likes of BNP Paribas uh, in France, Deutsche Bank in Germany, HSBC and Barclays in the United Kingdom, Société Générale and Crédit Agricole in France, uh, Santander in Spain, ING in the Netherlands uh, and Commerce Bank in Germany and Unicredit in Italy. Those are the top 10 creditors of these companies. And you'll probably recognize quite a few of those names. Some of you might even bank with those banks. And it's important to understand that when you're banking with these financial institutions, where is your money going? And in some instances, your money is being 
is being invested and um, financing companies that are operating in illegal Israeli settlements. So if I have a bank that's been listed on this report, what are the recommendations of bank track? Should I contact my bank? Does my bank really care what I think about where they invest my money? What could be the next course of action for an ordinary person like me? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good question. At the moment, uh, if in the report the recommendations are aimed at the financial institutions themselves and we've also aimed things at the likes of the European Parliament and European Commission um, and other national actors on a European level. But it is really important that the general public are aware of this also. Where your bank has been listed it's always possible for you to get in contact with your bank and there should be ways that you can do this. At the moment, we don't have a campaign for the public to contact their bank in that respect, but this will be happening later this year. So towards the end of November, we will be launching a public campaign where you can actually sign on to a letter to the uh, European actors and financial institutions that are listed in this report, and you can put your voice to the call for them to act on their responsibilities under international human rights standards. And what that means is that we, that they need to engage with these companies and where engagement is not leading to any change in their behavior, they have to divest. They have to move their money away from these companies because sometimes that's the only way that you can make change happen is to say, okay, nothing's, nothing's changing on the ground these companies are still operating in these illegal settlements. So what, what the banks need to do is take out their money. They should not be connected to this anymore. Yeah. As you said, we have seen big European banks like Barclays and HSBC being mentioned in the report. Do you think there's something that can be done at the European level to stop banks financing the illegal settlements? Do you think maybe the European Union should come up with some form of framework that bars banks from doing this? Yeah, that's a great question. There's lots of ways that the European Union um, and obviously within that the Parliament and the Commission can, can make a difference in this respect. On one level, uh, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights actually publishes a UN database of all the companies that are involved in activities relating to the settlements in the occupied Palestinian territory. And what the European Union can do is actually provide political and financial support to ensure that that database stays up to date. At the moment, it has not been updated for a very long time. And whilst we use this database quite a lot in the report, we also recognise the drawbacks of this database and the fact that it doesn't cover all the companies that are operating in the settlements. So the European Union can use their political and financial power to help support that. They also can call on business enterprises operating within the various jurisdictions within Europe to undertake what we call enhanced human rights due diligence procedures. And this basically means that these business enterprises and the financial institutions need to take extra steps to ensure that their money and that their activities are not prolonging the settlement enterprise in the occupied Palestinian territories. So we call it 
to identify, to mitigate and prevent. Uh, and it is a, it's, it's a long process that all business enterprises have to go through. But what the European Union can do is ensure that uh, the businesses and the financial institutions are doing this properly. Um, and there's actually a, a large push to make this a mandated uh, requirement to mandate human rights due diligence, uh, and especially within conflict areas. Um, it's, it's hugely important uh, that this due diligence is being done effectively in these conflict areas. Yeah, so as you mentioned, the report recommends financial institutions to conduct Indian's due diligence, among other things, in order to mitigate human rights impacts. But won't pulling out be the most reasonable thing to do, among the most reasonable things that banks can do, like instead of mitigating, because already, you know, building in an occupied territory is, uh, it's already questionable something to do. So isn't it the most reasonable thing for the bank to pull out? What's your view on this? Yeah, absolutely. And within within the due diligence process, obviously, we, we begin with the identifying and mitigating these risks. But as you say, where where things are being built, where things are operating within the illegal settlements, there's there's little you can do to to mitigate. And actually, very recently, um, Human Rights Watch have come out to say that there is no way that you can mitigate harm if you're operating in illegal settlements, you know, which which follows the common sense approach um, that, that you set out. So in many instances, what the financial institutions have to do is remove themselves from the situation absolutely when they're doing this they have to ensure that they're doing it in a way that they're not putting the people at a higher risk or putting you know the settlement enterprise Mm -hmm. in more danger so this means that they what we call it is responsible divestment and it means that throughout the process of you taking your money out of this situation, which we encourage them to do, mm-hmm. they have to ensure that they are respecting human rights along every step of that process. That's that's quite interesting. I think I think also it raises a question in my mind that, you know, if they just pull out maybe other banks that don't really care about human rights might pick up the projects. Ahana, thank you for joining us today and sharing your views on the contents of this insightful report. And yeah, any last words from you on the report? Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here. Um, I would just say if, if anybody's interested, then they can go to the Don't Buy Into Occupation website, which is simply don'tbuyintooccupation.org. Uh, and you can check out the report and uh, other various things on the website there. Thank you. Well, this is all for today's episode. Thank you for listening. If you found this interesting, please do share it on your social media and remember to tag us. If you want more of this content, visit our website at humanrightspulse.com and check out all of our colleagues' amazing work. And if you have any feedback or stories you would like to hear on our next episode, then get in touch. Take care and until next time.